0: Got me on. You got me on. Good. It's good to see. You. If we haven't met, my name is Luke. It's good to have you here. Um, if you have a Bible, turn to Ecclesiastes towards the end, maybe chapter 11. is gonna where we're gonna be. Chapter 12, chapter 11. We are getting close to the end of this book, if you can believe it. And while you're turning there, I know what kind of room I'm walking into today. It's probably one that's a little bit fatigued. Um, anytime a pandemic is the second line item in your news feed, you know that there's a lot going on. So I know that in the midst of a pandemic, we've got an election week that was less than, than uh, conf- it was confusing for a lot of people. It was fatiguing for a lot of people. And then the Vols did what the Vols did last night, and that made it even harder for everybody. So now everyone's kind of limping, and that's okay. We're going to get through it today. In all seriousness, I think what Charlie said is very helpful. She kind of stole some of my, my script, and that is that we have an opportunity as a church, to show the world what it looks like to work through bitterness. A lot of people are gonna be struggling with bitterness over the next weeks and months with half of the country. It doesn't even matter who you voted for at this point. I've seen people that have been on both sides of the aisle struggle with a deep-seated bitterness. Um, I think it's good to be encouraged and reminded that the Lord is in charge, the Lord is invested, the Lord is in control. She was quoting from Daniel, in Daniel chapter 2, right around the middle, and I don't know if this was what she was reading or not. You see this moment where we see, stated in the scripture, that God is in charge of the seasons and the moments in the kings. And then if you go to Proverbs 21, you see how the heart of kings are in the hands of the Lord. And he can maneuver and steer those hearts in any direction that he wants. And so, listen, presidents, prime ministers, leaders, they're going to come and go, but God is always our king. And so we have this beautiful opportunity to be at peace, to be confident, to rest, to say we're going to be okay. God is in control. And then at the same time, not to be bitter with others. Not, not to kind of hold a grudge against others. I think it's gonna be real important for the church going forward. Also, before we even jump in, I think it's probably good just to maybe make the announcement that because cases are spiking right now, and they are, Because cases are spiking and we're getting close to the holidays, it's good for you to know that as a church legacy, whether you're here or you're watching, we are not going to be having church-wide events. I mean, that's typically something we love to do around Thanksgiving or Christmas, have like a giant cookie exchange or a campfire where we get as many people as we can all on top of each other, you know, in a small house or around a campfire. Probably not the year to do that because we want to protect your holidays and don't want you getting into some situation where you have to quarantine for two weeks during the holidays. So what we'll do is we'll defer any of these kind of holiday functions, whether it's a Thanksgiving or a Christmas one to your missional communities and just let your calm group leaders and co-leaders kind of maybe steer how that could look for you because you guys are the eyes on the ground and you kind of know your situation and what is and is not possible. So we're gonna defer all of that to our missional community leaders and co-leaders and we're talking to them about that as well individually. So, but if you have your Bible, and you're in Ecclesiastes. This is gonna be a helpful passage for us. I'm excited to go through this passage with you, right? This has been a tough book, has it not? We're almost done with it. I mean, I'm getting a lot of great feedback from the book of Ecclesiastes. I gotta say, as a preacher, it'll stretch you. These are hard passages to preach. I'm actually looking forward to getting out of this book, if it makes any sense. But today and next week, I think is gonna be really helpful. Some of you know this, but before I was a preacher, I was going to school for medicine, I did not, do an undergraduate and anything ministry related. I was a pre-med undergrad and I learned as a freshman that if you were to break down your body into just the chemical elements that make it up. So we're talking hydrogen, potassium, carbon, things like that. If you were to break it up just into the elements that your body is not worth much on the open market. It's not, depending on the price of potassium. That's the most expensive element you have in your body. right? And I know a person, my frame and my size is worth about $160. That's it, 160 bones. That's enough to get you a pair of Air Jordans. That is not a lot of money. That's how much we are worth. And Solomon is gonna state in our passage today that when we die, the dust that we are returns to the earth as it was, which makes it sound a little bit less valuable than $160 when you think about it. I also know biologically speaking, that we begin deteriorating as people right around the 30 to 33-year mark. Depending on who you are and some of your organs deteriorate a little bit faster than others, but it's usually right there in your early 30s, right? And those of you in your mid-30s right now, you're not really disagreeing with that, are you? Because you have started to feel it. You might lie to yourself a little bit until you can still throw that, that football as far as you used to, but you know secretly you can't. You're starting to feel the changes physically, Maybe not all at once. I can still do the things I used to do, but I have to warm up a really long time now, I've noticed, right? And it takes longer to recharge when I'm done. According to Garmin, as of this morning, in this last decade, the last 10 years, I've traveled almost 26,000 miles, whether by bike or running or swimming, all on the same pair of knees, the same hips, and the same shoulders, which means they're not worth as much as my wife's right now. All the duty cycles, they are, I am depreciating in my element value. I'm probably worth about a buck 20 when you really think about it. Because all my bones and sinews, they don't work like they used to. I wake up in the morning in my ankles, in my knees, they pop and they crackle, almost loud enough to wake my wife up, right? because my body's getting older. My, I had an eye exam just a few days ago and I knew I knew going in that dumb chart, it just judges me. You know. I just know I'm gonna fail and I sit there and I do the best I can. I even fake it and make up a couple letters just in case I got a one in 26 chance, right? Might as well go ahead and take the chance. So I say it and he just looks at me and goes, listen, listen, you're getting older, right? And I knew it was bad from that time and so I got a, a different prescription. My hair is gone, I'm aging. I'm only 44, but I am depreciating. I'm arcing downward. Listen, if I was assembled brilliantly and thoughtfully in my mother's womb, which the Bible says I was in Psalm 139, and if I hit my pinnacle age between 29 and 33-ish, somewhere in there, then now I'm starting to disassemble slowly, right? This is the arc of life. Sounds great, doesn't it? Aren't you glad you came today? Isn't this helpful for you? Some of you are like, how much am I worth? If he's worth 160, how much am I worth? You're worth a lot, a lot more than I have. But here's the deal. I have a choice with that kind of reality, that kind of information, right? One, I can get vain and depressed and mourn the approaching end of my life. I can do that. Or I can let this reality serve me and glorify God all at the same time. We're more used to option number one where we deny that there's anything good about the end of a matter, as our sermon preacher in Solomon says in Ecclesiastes. It's easy to just idolize youth in fear, death. And what happens when we do this is we kind of ruin the gift of life while we hold it in our hands. And instead of seeing life as having its own beauty in its own phases, in its own times, in its own ways, we instead become very frustrated by the aging process towards death. We simply can't enjoy life very much because the fear of it slipping away and losing it. This is actually the same reason I struggle enjoying the season of fall. Some of you are like this because I've had conversations back and forth. Listen, I see the, the yellow trees, are beautiful, I get it. I see the orange next to the green tree, next to the red tree, it's stunning. You know why I can't enjoy it? It's the harbinger of winter, that's why, right? Because I know pretty soon all those pretty leaves I mean, they're dying. Let's face it, they're dying, right? And they're going to be falling from the tree, and cars are going to drive over it, right? And we're going to have to sweep them up or blow them into a, a sack, and, and it's going to be cold, and there's not going to be anything on the trees. And it's just going to be cold, and then it's going to be cold. You see what I'm saying? And so, because of that, because of that, I struggle with the season of fall. Oh, my. We're not online or anything. This isn't live cast. (laughs) That was Charlie Plog. (laughs) What I think you're going to see in this passage today is we don't know how to age very well. We don't know how to do it. We don't know how to approach death very well, and you will never know how to live well unless you know how to age well. You'll never know how to live well unless you know how to die well. And this is what Solomon is going to mentor us in today. He's actually going to showcase our end so that our today is invigorated, so that our now is empowered. This is going to be my goal. This is his goal in the passage. It's going to be my goal, not to lead you into a vain frustration with how you age or to paint over it or deny that it's even happening, but it's to allow this end of our life when we age, to speak into today, to tell us how to live today, to produce a better now. And so for that, we're going to look at this passage backwards, okay? Because it's going to, that's how our, our Western minds will interpret it the best. So we're going to start in chapter 12, not in chapter 11, right? We are going to do chapter 11, but go to chapter 12 in your, in your Bible with me. This is the word of the Lord. We're going to see Christ pretty clearly in this. And I'm gonna stop from here and there just to kind of explain what's going on because this is a poetic description of aging. And our sermon teacher today, our wise preacher in Solomon says this, remember also your creator in the days of your youth before the evil days come and the years draw near of which you will say I have no pleasure in them before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars are darkened and the clouds return after the rain. In the day when the keepers of the house tremble and the strong men are bent. Okay, let's pause for a moment. Eventually, you will be tempted to hate your days. Doesn't mean you're going to, but you'll be tempted to. You'll be tempted to hate your final days because you'll get up earlier than you want to. You'll have to eat the same breakfast you normally do because you're probably on some diet because of your age and because of how you feel. You'll sit in the recliner You'll watch a, a, a rerun of Law and Order at 8 a.m., right? You'll take a nap. You'll get up. You'll eat lunch. You'll take another nap. You've gone to the bathroom nine times since you got up, right? And then you'll go to bed at 6 o'clock p.m. And you will be tempted to hate those days. He says that the strong are bent over with trembling, weak joints. That's what he's saying in this passage. Listen, I have pictures of both my grandparents, and they both fought in World War II in the South Pacific, One of them in particular I have a lot of pictures of, and he was a stud. He didn't have a shirt on in any of his pictures, right? He always had this grin on his face like he was about to tell a joke, and you weren't sure if it was a a suitable joke. He was tan. He was muscular. He was electric. He was fast. He was entrepreneurial. He was alive, smirking all the time. That's who he was. By the end, Grandpa would wear down the carpet between the recliner in the bathroom. That's, that's what it looked like. Even with the heart of a 20-year-old, his bar-fighting days were behind him, his endless push-ups behind him, log-splitting that was all in the past. And I remember the last summer I got to spend with him, watching him go back and forth and back and forth, and I thought, that's gonna be me. Gosh, that's gonna be me someday, with a head stuffed full of contacts and hearing aids and dentures and it would depress me but I got to tell you it doesn't anymore it doesn't depress me anymore it serves me it makes me excited and I'm going to tell you why here in a little bit but let's go on and keep reading in this passage he says and the grinders cease because they are few and those who look through the windows are dimmed and the doors on the street are shut okay that's very poetic language for your teeth is falling out That's what grinders are. Your teeth are falling out. Your eyes can't see like they used to. And when it says that the doors of the house are shut or the doors of the street are shut, you've got to remember back then they didn't have dentures, right? So the teeth would fall out. The mouth would change shape. The lips would pull in. And your your mouth kind of just caves in on itself, it looks like, anyway, right? That's what he's saying right here, okay? Go ahead and look at the next little bit. And when the sound of the grinding is low and one rises up at the sound of a bird, and all the daughters of song are brought low. That just means that you will wake up earlier than you want to, because the birds singing outside wake you up, yet the things you want to hear, you won't be able to hear, because we lose our hearing. He goes on to say this, if you keep going, they were afraid also of what is high, and terrors are in the way. This is just simply a tip of the hat to the fact that when we age, we lose our nerve a little bit. A little less risky than we used to be. A little less reckless. A little bit more easily terrified. You know, I would listen to my grandpa tell stories, and even his adventures were aging. They were all locked up in his younger years. A little less risky. A little less crazy in his later years. He goes on to say, the almond tree blossoms... The grasshopper drags itself along and desire fails. So in almond tree, the blooms are white. They turn white on the tree and then they blow off. He's talking about hair here, losing your hair as you age. He's painting a picture of a grasshopper that has to drag itself, right? What used to be an agile, powerful creature can barely operate right now. And then he says our desires decline. Men, did you know that after the age of 30, you lose 1% of your testosterone production every single year from then on? Your desires fade over time. It's a reality. He goes on to finish this little section. And he says, because man is going to his eternal home. And the mourners go about the streets before the silver cord is snapped, that's your spinal cord. And the golden bowl is broken, that's your head. Or the pitcher is shattered at the fountain, which is your heart. Or the wheel broken at the cistern. And the dust returns to the earth as it was. And the spirit returns to God who gave it vanity of vanities, says the preacher. All is vanity. Listen, in my opinion, this is probably the most poetic description of aging we have in the Bible. It just has the accent of old age in it when you listen to it, right? I mean, wasn't it fun to read? I mean, no one's got a body tattoo of this passage anywhere, right? No shiplap decorations with Ecclesiastes 12 hanging in anyone's house. (laughs) Instagram selfie posts with a little bit of Ecclesiastes 12 at the bottom. Why does he carry us through all of this? Why is it even in the Bible? I mean, it has, a, it has a goal. And anytime you read anything in the Old Testament, especially the Old Testament, you should be asking yourself, why is this in the Bible? Why is it even in here? This is what Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy 3. All scripture is breathed out by God, even Ecclesiastes 12, and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be Hear what we're supposed to do from this passage. We're supposed to be made complete and equipped for every good work, right? So how does a passage like this complete us and equip us today? How? The answer is, is he wants you to live well today. He wants you to know how to live. He wants you to know how to live by knowing and embracing and reckoning the fact that you will age until you die. Because you can't live well unless you know how to age well. So now let's go back to the beginning of this passage, and we're going to see why he is saying all of this. So go to Ecclesiastes 11, look at verse 1, and he says this, Cast your bread upon the waters, for you will find it after many days. Give a portion to seven or even eight, for you know not what disaster may happen on earth. All he's saying right here, it's real cryptic, but all he's saying is is when you invest your talent and your treasure, invest widely. Seven directions, maybe eight directions, right? So if you have money or you invest money, don't flush all of your retirement and put it all on Bitcoin, right? That's what he's saying. Be careful and be wise with how you spend your time, spend your talents, and spend your money. That's all he's saying right here. But go on to verse three. He says, if the clouds are full of rain, they empty themselves on the earth. And if a tree falls to the south or to the north, and the place where the tree falls, there it will lie. He who observes the wind will not sow, and he who regards the clouds will not reap. As you do not know the way the Spirit comes to the bones in the womb of a woman with child, so you do not know the work of God who makes everything. All right, now we're getting somewhere. You know, clouds, rain, falling trees, they're not really waiting for your input, are they? Creation doesn't doesn't really collaborate with us and how it moves and marches forward. In fact, we can't even crack the code on how a soul enters a child when that child is being thoughtfully knit in the womb of a mother. If we can't understand that, we're never going to understand why and how God does the things that he does. And with this in mind, he kind of buries this life lesson for you and me, and that is if your obedience waits for perfect conditions, you will never move. You will never do anything. If you wait for the right time to sow, you will never sow. And if you never sow, friend, you will never reap. Because those who wait for the perfect moment to do something will not find it because they don't exist. The perfect moment where all failure is out the door and you won't be hurt or there's not the possibility of making a wrong decision, that moment is a myth. It does not exist. That's why his conclusion is is when you wake, actively work hard because you don't know which direction is going to get traction and which area is not. So work and work hard. He says this in verse 6. In the morning sow your seed and at evening withhold not your hand. For you do not know which will prosper, this or that, or whether both alike will be good. Listen, when you read a passage like this it gives a feel it gives a mood the feel here is if not now when if you're not going to obey god in risky difficult dangerous and hard areas if not now then when when are you going to do it Some people spend their entire lives waiting for the perfect time to live because we want total assurance that everything is going to be a success. We want control of all the variables before we move forward. And listen, this is me. I'm preaching to myself. I would love to know for a fact that I cannot fail in the things that I try. Yet, every adventure that I love the most, the stories that mean the most, are moments where God says obey and do, and the world around me says don't even try it. All of my favorite adventures and endeavors are the ones where God says, you got a green light, but I look at the wind and I look at the rain and I look at the clouds and they say, not a good time. Not a good time. It's a cocoon of complacency and what it actually is is the fear of failure. Again, what we do is we think that by not deciding to do something hard that we're gonna be safe and you couldn't be more wrong. By avoiding failure and by avoiding hardship, you are losing life. You're dying in place. You're losing opportunity. I hear it all the time in people that kick the can down the street when it comes to doing something hard, when it comes to building something hard, when it comes to being sacrificial, when it comes to endeavoring, when it, when it comes to adventuring. Hey, we're, gonna have, we're gonna wait to have kids. We're gonna wait 10 years to have kids. I hear that all the time. Why? So because we're gonna have a lot of money then. <laughs> you are. No, you're not. We're going to get married in three years really when did you get engaged yesterday look at my ring three years why so we can finish school and have more money set aside come on right we're going to give to the kingdom when we have money that's my favorite that's a different sermon i'm going to work really hard not to get off on a rabbit trail there we're going to talk to our neighbor about christ after dinner number 92 because we're going to be besties before we let them know of the things that we have heard and seen in Christ Jesus before we testify. There's one. We're gonna join a missional community when things slow down. We're gonna join a calm group. We're gonna get invested. We're gonna do this when things slow down. You will be the first person ever in the history of humanity to have had things slow down. They don't, they speed up. See, when we're watching the wind and we're watching the clouds, we're not sowing, we're dying in place right where we stand. I think some of us are having a real hard time with God's call for us to obey in areas and we're not moving simply because it's hard. It's just hard. But you gotta know the Christian life is one of action. The Christian life is one of adventure and risk and courage. And no, that's not convenient for anybody. Not for anybody you see this has everything to do with how we deteriorate into sulfur and carbon and potassium has everything to do with this because listen if we come from the dust and we end in the dust then let this be the day that we seize for the glory of christ as we live today as we act today as we are courageous today and if not now then when when you can't see anymore when you can't hear anymore or taste anymore and you can't move anymore and you don't even know who's in the same room with you? Is that when you're gonna do it? Friends, listen, fight for your marriage now. (laughs) Invest in the kingdom now. Be involved parents now. Evangelize the lost now. Reconcile with your enemies now. Forgive those who you have not been forgiving now. Do it now. Testify to what you've seen and heard now. Have hard conversations with hard people and do it now. Make friends now. Make disciples now. Be discipled now. Risk safety now. Put your addictions down now. Just be obedient now. Because there's never a comfortable time to do something hard, and I mean never. They don't exist. That's what Solomon's saying. He's like, look, do scary and hard things today because there's going to be a day, one day, where your teeth are going to fall out and your hormones are going to revolt, right? And then everyone that's younger than you is now turned into the punk kid, right? And you forgot how to use the internet and someone took your car keys away. That day's coming for all of us, right? (laughs) I remember the day that they took the car keys away from my grandpa. That was a bit of a rough day. Now, he couldn't see, he kept backing into things. <laughs> he was deaf and he was blind. I don't know why it took us so long to take his car keys, but it did, so, but he was upset. And years later, he came to me and he pulled me aside. He said, Luke, listen, if you take me to the dealership right now, I'm gonna buy a car right now because no one's gonna tell me what I can and can't do. And there's something in it for you too if you take me to the dealership right now. I said, Grandpa, it's not a good idea, not a good idea. But this is why George Bernard Shaw says youth is wasted on the young, right? Because what happens when we age? We look back on our younger years and we wish that we had a little bit more courage. Do we not? I've done this for 22 years now in the ministry. And when I look back, there are times, listen, I don't regret a lot of decisions I've made, for sure, and I love what I get to do now. And I love how the Lord has carried me through all of my moronic mistakes. But man, I gotta be honest, I wish I would have thrown the deep ball a little more. I've been consistent, I've been loyal. I'll get a couple yards here. I'll get a couple yards in another play. But man, there are some times if I could go back and do it all over again, I'd let it rip a few times. But that fear of failure, it's difficult. Ecclesiastes 11, 7 to 10. Let's finish this little piece out. Light is sweet, and it is pleasant for the eyes to see the sun. So if a person lives many years, let him rejoice in them all. But let him remember that the days of darkness will be many, and all that comes is vanity. Rejoice, O young man, in your youth, and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart and the sight of your eyes, but know that for all these things, God will bring you into judgment. Remove vexation from your heart and put away pain from your body, for youth and the dawn of life are vanity. Okay, simply what he's saying is this, rejoice when you're young, go ahead and slay some dragons, build something, do whatever is in your heart to do, do whatever you see in front of you and just know that God is gonna measure it all. That's effectively what he's saying. But that perfect time you might be waiting for to obey God, it's not coming. It's not coming. Obedience will always hold hands with discouraging circumstances. Always. It will never be the perfect moment for hard action because it's gonna require sacrifice. It's going to require you to let go of the dock a little bit. Few, if any, great endeavors in history have waited for the best conditions before action. Very few. And what he's saying is the best solution for uncertainty around us is effort. And more effort. And more effort after that because you don't know what's going to have traction and what's not. This is what Paul tells... Or this is what Paul tells a young Ephesian church in chapter five, stay where you're at. He says, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. He tells a young disciple in Timothy, in 2 Timothy, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season. You see, Solomon is calling us to action. And not not action down the road, but action today. Action now. Not out of irresponsibility or selfish pride. Right? It's the action that comes from obeying the voice and the words and the leadership of God. And we can see this in the New Testament if you just look at the book of Acts, just a cursory reading of Acts. Do you not see this happening? You see a church in persecution, yet they're making disciples, and they're blowing up at the seams. They're expanding all over, and they're planting churches as absolutely fast as they possibly can. And they didn't do this because they wanted to be seen as entrepreneurial or because they were vying for a a, a spot on the TED Talk circuit. They weren't doing this because they wanted to be esteemed among each other. They made hard decisions and they worked hard because they wanted more God. I don't know all of the people that were in the Acts Church, but I know that we know from their actions and their words that most knew that today is a vapor and they thought that it might be their last day. The authorities are banging on the door, if not now, when? If not now, if we're not disciples now, then when? If we're, not gonna, if we're not gonna throw the deep ball and be courageous and have that hard conversation now, then when? When are we gonna do it? Listen, if you, I gotta say this, if you lead a calm group, or you are co-leading a calm group and you're watching online or you are here, you've been put in the place of making very hard decisions in very inconvenient days, have you not? Right? It's hard to lead anything in 2020, just being real with you. you, To lead a lemonade stand would have been more difficult in 2020. To lead a church has been very difficult. To lead a comm group, very hard, right? When do we meet? How many are we allowed to have? Masks, no masks, inside, outside, how do we do food? What about mission? Where did mission go, right? It's different. It was already hard to do something, and now it feels impossible. I have to say this, you folks held us together as a church. You missional community leaders, you missional community co-leaders, who, you who are high contributors in your missional community, you held us together through a pandemic, God's work through you. Certainly wasn't my 40 minute videos from the basement, right? You guys kept everyone connected, you kept everyone encouraged, and I can't be more proud of you, I'm thankful. Not every church in the nation had something like this, we did. God was sweet to us it was because God's work in you provided faithfulness and consistency so thank you for not waiting for the clouds to tell you it's okay to lead for not waiting for the wind to give you permission to lead and just as we enter 2021 as we've been talking as leaders pastoral leaders residency leaders, staff leaders, as we've had our various retreats and kind of planning sessions and vision sessions for 2021. Some of the big questions we have is how do we reignite missional passion and the consistency in this church that we had in 2019? How do we do that? How do we try a bunch of things knowing that a bunch of things are gonna fail and then letting people know it's totally okay and actually a good sign when that happens? How do we teach this? How do we make disciples through a mask? How do we make disciples through a screen? I mean, the church was made for pandemics. It was made for volatile seasons. If we can't make disciples now, then when? If not now, then when? How do we handle everyone who disagrees with us? How do we handle those who hate us? I think the answer is as we fail forward, we move forward, and we do so with godly dependence right? After all, we have the same God that the church in Acts did. Very same God. This is a real key piece of the passage. I would say it's the pin that holds this whole passage together is twelve one? Now, we read it when we first started. He says, remember also your creator, Remember. Now that's a throwaway passage for a lot of people, to remember also your creator, but that's no small thing to remember God. And you don't actually even find him speaking like this in the whole 11 chapters before this. He has not sounded like this. You've probably noticed if you've been working with this pastor, working through this book with us, his his tone is changing a little bit. That's on purpose, right? He says, remember. And what that means is it's ditching Ditching this pretense of self-sufficiency that we have. leaving it at the door and committing ourselves totally to God, being dependent totally on God. We see in Psalm 137, stay where you're at. The psalmist say, let my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth if I do not, same word, remember you. If I do not set God, some of your Bibles say Jerusalem, above my highest joy. This is a picture of total commitment. To remember God is to lose the idea that you are self-sufficient, even in your courage. Even in your courage, you don't create that either. Sure, you act, and then yes, you're fully 100% dependent on God acting, and both those are true at the same time. We see Paul kind of talk about this this dichotomy of action in Philippians two, he says, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Right? When you find courage to obey in difficult matters, when you find the courage to do something hard in a hard moment, you don't find that courage like you found a, a French fryer, a quarter underneath your car seat, right? Or like a sock behind the dryer. If you found courage to do anything, that's because God gave it to you, right for that moment, right for that time, right? If you feel courageous, you finally went through with it, you finally had that hard conversation, you made that hard decision. You did that hard thing. You put something down and you picked something up. You were active. You were living. When you do that, you can thank God for that. Triumphantly thank God for that. This is good for me to remember God when we make big sacrifices, especially with things we've been putting off. And when the situation looks difficult and that little person inside of you says, maybe we should wait a day. Maybe we should put it off a week Maybe we should do it in a month. Hey, here about, maybe we should do it never. How does that sound? That little person that talks to us, I want you to remember the scene of the cross. Not for a way of shaming you. That would be odd. But to look at the cross as a scene of inconvenience where nothing looked right. Everything looked like it was the wrong time. The wind and the cloud said, this is not the time. Everything was out of place. Nothing was timely. Yet at the same time, it was forecast and brilliantly designed since even before the oceans were poured. It's God's idea. I mean, when you look at, at Jesus moving towards the cross, his disciples tried to talk him out of it, telling him, it's not the time for this, it's not the place for this. He himself was tempted to find another route. Yet he remembered his Father, and he became his highest joy. He acted uphill. His endeavor towards the cross was uphill, doing a hard thing and a hard moment. But his whole life was like this, wasn't it? The life of Christ, full of action, full of courage. He, he said hard things at hard times that were unpopular, didn't he? I mean, when you, when you read the Gospels, the wind and the clouds, the circumstances, this world, they never say, go ahead and do that. That sounds like a good idea right now. It always looks the opposite. He didn't wait and wait and wait and wait for everything to promise him that there would be no failure. This, friends, is the shape of our life. This is our hero and our trailblazer that goes before us. He's our beacon of courage. He calls us to act, and then he supplies the ability to do it. Right? and now we're free. We're free to fail. We're we're free to throw the deep ball, to do hard things, to say hard things, to make hard decisions. We're free to do this. You've got nothing to lose. When the surrounding elements tell you you have everything to lose, you've got nothing to lose. If God is telling you to obey him in a very difficult matter right now, you have nothing to lose, even if you do seem to lose everything. You still have nothing to lose. You wanna know why? Because you can't lose him. You can't lose him. All that is in jeopardy is this life under the sun, which is a vapor. And, friends, listen, I don't know where I find you today, whether you're 20 years old or 70 years young, but I know that you have life now. You have life now. And if not now, then when? If not now, then when? Because I have a feeling God has told many people in here and many people watching that you need to slay a couple dragons. But everything around you says that you're gonna lose if you try. My admonition is that you remember God. Remember God. And that he who commands you, supplies you. He who is commanding you to be courageous and active will supply the courage and the unction, the will, as Paul says, to do it. Philippians four, he says, and my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. So make today the day of courage, the day of adventure. Make today the day of putting some things down and picking some things up, right? And listen, if you're a skeptic today or a searcher of some kind, choose this day courageously to leave this life under the sun, to cling to he who is our highest joy, as the psalmist says. You know, or as Joshua says, he tells us to put away the gods that our fathers served, put them away. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Friends, listen, if you're searching for Christ, if you're questioning whether this God thing is real, whether you wanna throw all of your weight into it, let me ask you the same thing I've been asking everybody else here. If not now, then when? Is it gonna be when Christianity is easier? Can I just give you some real talk of what's gonna happen? This is what happens when someone becomes a Christian. Your life will get harder, but it will become sweeter. It'll get more difficult, and yet it's gonna be more joy-saturated. The enemy will hate you with a ferocity, and yet God will love you and adore you with a deep passion. Your desires that you've had your whole life will have competition, and yet there's not going to be any competition at all. You will find inconvenience like you've never felt before, and yet God will give you the courage to act in the midst of it. You will find hard work in front of you in Christianity, and yet your soul will finally rest at the same time. At the same time, choose this day who you will follow. As for me, in my house, we will serve the Lord. Amen. Go ahead and stand with me. Let me pray for you.